My name is John Ray Lemons, Jr., uh, 445th Bomb Group, 702 Squadron, and uh, I was flying from Tibbenham, England. And what were you doing before you were, before you were sent out to Europe? I was working for an oil company in the city of Dallas, Texas. How old were you? I was about 21 at the time I signed up to go to cadets and while I was awaiting that I turned 22 and still hadn't gotten in and finally was drafted because I had a slight problem with the injury I had when I was an eight-year-old kid which is a weird-looking scar. It's called osteomyelitis and they said that I couldn't fly because I couldn't stand the G's and of course in those days I didn't know what the G's meant. I thought that was G-Wiz or something. <laughs> and when you were told you were going to be sent out to Europe, how did you feel about that? Well, uh, the war was uh, imminent, uh, we were in deep trouble and we had to do something so everybody in my age bracket was definitely interested and ready to try to do something and to be patriotic of course was we all were and uh, we just couldn't believe what had happened to us already and so we had to do something to defend ourselves and end the war and wind up in our favor. So when you, when you arrived in Tibbenham, which couldn't have been further away geographically, how similar was it to Dallas where you were from? Well, it's quite a different uh, atmosphere because we lived in a normal neighborhood in Dallas in the early days and uh, probably uh, when you thought about what was fixing to happen you didn't know what your quarters would be where you were going and of course when you wound up going to and to go overseas. We didn't know which way we were going. We didn't know whether we were going to the Pacific, whether we were going to European theater or what, but at the last minute they told us we were going to get on board a ship and go to New York City and board a ship. And we kind of figured that must be going to Europe, but she didn't know that. As it turned out, we were to board a ship which happened to be the Queen Elizabeth, and it had 18,500 men already 15,000 already on board and another 500 going to get on. That was Air Force guys at the last minute and decided to put on this ship and go over. How long, were you, how long were you on that ship? We were on that ship about seven days. We landed at Gurok, which is kind of like going to Glasgow, Scotland. And from there they uh, took us uh, after a couple of three days there to a place in Ireland called Clutey, I believe is the name of the little town. And then from that they brought us back via an airplane and dropped us off at some air base that turned out to be Tibnum. <laughs> now you talk about jet lag. <laughs> yeah, it was must have been something. Yeah. yeah, jet lag in those days. It was all fresh air though. <laughs> yeah. So when you arrived in Tibnum, can, can you remember the arrival, getting onto the base, finding your bunks, things like that? Yeah, we didn't know what to expect, of course, and we didn't have any idea what uh, what we were going to have to do to get into battle or whatever. And, of course, as it turns out, you had to do a lot of practice stuff before they would let you actually get into a combat mission. So we learned that we had to fly and do a lot of training so, so, so as to kind of be equipped to expect 
uh, what you might see in, in aerial battles. What kind of uh, first impressions did you have of the people in, in, in Northern War? In, in, in England? Yeah. yeah. Well, they were, the biggest problem we had was understanding them. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the two accents are quite similar. The accents, yeah. Yeah, they're similar, but yet uh, the, the, the lingo from a Texan, for example, versus a Britisher, I'm, I'm sure even still today, is a little different. So yeah, we had a little problem with the language, but uh, you learn to get, understand it after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you remember the? Can you remember your first uh, mission when you were sent up? Very well. My first mission. I was actually supposed to be an assistant flight engineer gunner, which meant normally I could fly in the waist position or occasionally the top turret, or a tail if I had to, or the nose if I had to. And uh, we had a nine-man crew. We had taken the ball turrets out of all the B-24s. So we had an extra man on our team. So we had enough enlisted men that we didn't want to lose any of them. So what we agreed to do was all enlisted men would rotate except for one, and you'd fly different positions on each mission. But unfortunately for me, on the first mission, the bombardier got sick or something, and they decided I ought to be the bombardier. And the bombardier, of course, when you're leading off of a, following, following a lead airplane, you become a toggleer. If you heard the word toggleer, toggle, you punch a switch, which means when the airplane leading all of this bomb mission drops its bombs, when he punches the button, you see his bombs go, you're punching yours at the same time. So all the planes dropped their bombs at the same time. So that was my first mission. But unfortunately, as soon as we dropped the bombs, we were right in the middle of the flak battle that you could, never having seen one, you didn't know what you were getting into. And the flak was intense. And the nose turret that I was in got the biggest chunk of it it hit you ever saw. That glass is about that thick almost four or five inches thick, and uh, blew the turret almost uh, 90 degrees to the right, or 90 degrees rear, so my rear was hanging out and the doors blew off of the turret, and manually all the controls were gone. I couldn't get back in the ship, and the navigator was able to get me back by manually working on the gears and trying to get the doors twisted to get me back into the ship. But uh, first mission, I thought, well, if this is the way it all is, I'm not sure I want to do this. It's a baptism of fire here today. Yeah, it's amazing. All of these stories, to me, the quick thinking that goes up so far, uh, that's going on so far and so up so far in the air. It's just incredible to think humans can function. That's under right. That kind of pressure. And yeah, strain. yeah. Well, you 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 just do what you think you need to do whenever it happens and. I guess we're all dumb and young, maybe. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember bunking down then after that first mission? Well, I, after that, I, I would say, well, I guess I made that one, I ought to make the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to ask a little about when you're actually in the plane above the clouds. Pretty much everyone we've spoken to has spoken about the strange thing of how beautiful it is. Yeah, quiet, serene. It's very serene, very quiet. You can see nothing but solid clouds. 
and you don't have any idea where you are or what you're over, maybe the navigator does because he knows where he's watching the, the maps and everything and the radar. But to you as a crew member, you're sitting back somewhere else or in another part of the plane, you don't really realize that. All you're thinking about is, is there somebody out there lurking around going to look for me or going to shoot me down or, or go after me or whatever, and you're, you're thinking about that more than anything else. Now I want to speak a little bit about the uh, the doomed mission to Kessel in Germany. Okay. Um, can, can you remember setting off for that mission and feeling, I guess, just felt like any other mission? Well, yeah, as far as I was concerned, it was just another mission. And the word Kessel didn't really mean anything to me, except it was a mission. And uh, even though we were kind of told what the, the target was supposed to be, it didn't mean that much, it was just another mission, you know, so we had to complete the mission and come back. That was the, all you could think about. So even on my crew, uh, one of the members, and I can't remember which one, but uh, he made the comment, this, this ought to be a milk run. And I said, I know I popped up and said, I don't care to hear that word milk run, or I'm a milk run until you're back home, because I don't remember that first mission. <laughs> but anyway, uh, and that quieted that down, and and then uh, the next thing uh, I knew, we were, you know, going on a merry way to the target, and it was solid cloud cover. All you could see if you looked at the plane was just solid cloud, and we were probably at 23,500 feet about that time. And then, of course, it was to be a, a doomed mission, as it were. It turned out to be a screwed-up mission, be the right word, I guess you might say because what really happened, my group, which was the 445th, were to lead approximately 300 airplanes going to Castle. And the 445th was the lead group. We were leading 389th, the 453rd, and I can't remember all the other bomb groups following us, to say there's 260 behind us. And for some reason, we made us a turn and Apparently there was, he broke radio silence, all, which you're not supposed to do, but they did. And uh, somebody argued about the fact that you're going wrong. And uh, of course, I'm sure in all the discussion between the navigators and the pilots and all of that, it was the 445th lead plane commander <coughs> crew navigator must have said, no, we're right you're doing right, you follow just where you're going. The rest of the planes didn't believe that. They still thought it was a mistake, so they went ahead, so they left us all alone. We had 30, uh, we had 35 planes at that time flying. We started out with 39 and lost five through abortions and whatever before they ever got into combat area. <clears throat> so we're, we were all alone, 35 of us. And then shortly after that, Something else happened. <laughs> You're exposed, right? We dropped the bombs, dropped the bombs on what we thought the target was, which turned out to be, I guess, a target. But shortly thereafter, all of a sudden, we could see all kinds of planes coming in, reported from the rear, and it turns out to be ME-109s and FW-190s. And in a matter of, I'd say, three to five minutes, our plane, well, less than that, I'm gonna say within a minute, the plane was probably on fire. The Bombay fire was roaring. 
and uh, trying to figure out what's going on, you realize that you'd been hit and you knew the plane was going to blow up eventually if you didn't get the fire out. <coughs> As it turned out, we continued on for a few minutes and it just got worse. And uh, somehow with no radio communication because we were messed up for other means of communication. So the, th the three of us in the back, which would be a waste gunner besides me, myself, and uh, the tail gunner, come crawling out of the turret. He came out of the turret at the rear and he'd already been shot up pretty bad. And uh, somehow I thought, I gotta get the chute, the, the hatch open, and get the chutes. And neither one of us had our chutes on the two waste gunners. They were up against the bulkhead. And I was able to get both chutes, got mine on, got his on. And the tail gunner was there still trying to figure out what to do. And I got the hatch open and he needed help. So I helped push him out the plane. <clears throat> and he bailed out, I guess. <clears throat> so I was trying to get the other waste gunner to go. And we kept making signals. He pointing to me first, I kind of like, you go and then I'll go. And I finally figured out somebody had to go. So I, I went and I bailed out and immediately instead of pulling the ripcord at free fall to 10 or 12,000 feet, I pulled the ripcord immediately right in the middle of the battle. So they were still shooting at each other and, you would and I was right in the middle of it and the airplanes were dodging me from either dumping me or trying to dump me or gonna shoot me. I thought the ME-109 ME was gonna shoot me down but he didn't. He just evaded me and went around me. And first thing I knew, you know, I was 23-5 and you don't last too long free falling, I passed out. And I came to it about 10 or 12, I'll say 12,000 feet maybe, still above the clouds. And all I could see was just clouds. And when I broke through the crowd, then I could see land and trying to figure out, I could avoid hitting trees because you could see woods and trees everywhere. And I did miss the trees by what, 50 feet probably. Can you remember what was going through your mind when you were, when you were there sitting duck, when you were floating through all this? Did you have time to think about anything? No, you, you, just, you just wonder what in the world has happened to me? <laughs> what has happened here? Well, of course you knew what happened because of the plane, you, you just knew that plane was going to blow up sometime soon. And uh, at that point in time, you, you normally would think, well, the, they must have had an alarm button to tell us to get out. Well, of course, the communication didn't work, so you had to do what you thought was right for you at that position at that time. And when, when you landed, where did, where did you find it? I landed out in a, a field right almost on top of that area where the trees were, folded up my chute. The time I got my chute picked up, just dragging me along, I got it off and folded it up. And then two farmers come racing up with, with pitchforks, ready to let me go. Get, get a pitchfork, I guess. And they were yelling at me or something I didn't understand, but finally figured out, they were trying to tell me who am I. I said I was Americanish, Americanish, American, American. And they were still poking at me with those forks. And I thought, boy, they're gonna do something to me. And two young soldiers for the German soldiers were Wormach ground troopers. They were probably about 16 years old at the most. 
and they had the long Tom rifle with that bayonet about that long on it. And uh, they come screaming up and yelling at these two farmers. And uh, I got the idea of what they said, Rouse, 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 to me meant get the heck out of here. So that's what I started trying to do is get out of the way of these two farming and they, they kept pushing me to go get going with those guns. So what we did, we got away from the two farmers and we started on a road marching to a little town, towards the town somewhere, which I didn't know even until a few years and never was sure what town was, what the name of the town was. Why, why were the farmers so hostile to you? Well, because I guess most of the Germans had been bombed by the bombers and they felt like it's you were bombing women and children and they called us terror fliggers and gangsters, Chicago crooks, uh, all kinds of words. And you could understand those because they'd be yelling at you those kind of words. So I guess maybe they had friends who'd been bombed or families who knew about being bombed and so they were just willing to do something to you, I suppose. Can you tell me again how old you were when you were? That was, uh, that was in uh, 44, so I was 20, 23. I would be 24 shortly thereafter. <laughs> where, where, did, where did you, I think celebrates the wrong word, but where did you have your, your 24th birthday then? I had my 24th birthday uh, in a prison camp. <laughs> Which prison, so which prison camp were you Well, I, I was actually picked up by these two young soldiers. They marched me into a town. And apparently before we got to this town, we kept picking up people who had been shot down just like me out of my same bomb group. And by the time we got almost into this town, we probably had about a dozen or more guys like me. With, some of them had wounds and burns and all kinds of things. but. We were marching along the town and we were accosted by, as it turned out, to be a guy with a real fancy uniform. It turned out to be the burgomaster of the town. And he stopped the two guards that had us, the two soldiers, and started lambasting, languaging words and all that kind of stuff at us. And uh, he had his pistol in his hand that he was just going down the front row and kind of swinging at everybody. And he almost he got me in the face pretty good. And I just kind of bolted out of there and uh, he pulled that gun out and thought, boy, he's fixing to pop me. So I stopped. And sure enough, those two young soldiers who were more than 16 years old were able to yell, Rouse, Rouse. And this guy, for some reason, just let him take over us again. We marched on into town and put me in a basement of a building somewhere in this little town for the night. And we probably had by evening uh, at least 25, 28 people in that room, all prisoners. Was everyone talking to each other? Or oh, we were talking to each other, but a lot of them were injured at burns or broken bones or uh, wounds in their body and we were wanting them to get some medical aid. And all they could give you was some bandages, paper bandages and an aspirin or something like that. And uh, we spent the night there. The next morning they brought in litters where you could pick them up and carry people. So anybody who could walk would pick up one end of one and you'd put a guy, an American wounded guy on there. 
and we marched from that building to a train station carrying the guys that couldn't walk. Must have been six of us or eight of us doing that, taking guys on the litter. And they put us on this train, of course, where we had to go through the town, and everybody was doing the same thing, yelling at you and calling you all these kind of things. And finally, they got us on the train. I don't know where they put the guys who were wounded. They took the litters from us and placed them somewhere on the train. And the next thing I knew, we were on the train riding going somewhere. Turned out to be interrogation center near Frankfurt. And that's where I went. Uh, they put me in a camp called Wetzlar, which is kind of an interrogation center. And that uh, was probably about two or three days of being there. And for some reason, I never knew what happened to any of the rest of my crew and and didn't know until I got home after the war, of course. But my pilot, who had been in that plane in the front, bailed out and was captured. And he said he saw me and where I was, but I never saw him. I was. He said my face was so swollen where I'd been beaten up and the face was black and blue. And uh, so I never knew that he saw me. He tells me that story today still. He, he saw me. But uh, after going through the interrogation, which is, I don't know whether anybody's told you anything about that, but when you go through interrogation with the Germans, what they do, we had seen a film, a training film, American train film. It tells you what to expect, what you might get into, what you're supposed to do. Of course, you're supposed to give them your name, rank, serial number. That's it. That's all you know. And uh, this guy that got me that doing my interrogation, he said uh, he could tell where I was from. I said, I'm USA. You know where I'm from. He said, I know where you're from. I can tell by your language, the way you talk. So what? <laughs> and he finally kept saying he won't know what, where I was from, what my mother's name was, and all that. Uh, name ranking serial. That's all I'm supposed to give you. know, three names. That's all I'm supposed to do. So anyway, uh, after this interrogation, he finally said, "How about a lucky strike?" I said, "No, nah, I don't need a lucky strike. I don't even smoke. What is a lucky strike?" <laughs> and he said, "Well, you can't kid me." He said, "I'm." I was in the United States until 1939. He said, I lived in Buffalo, New York. Yeah. He said, so I know a lot about the U.S. That's why he was put on interrogation. Oh, yeah, that's, I'm sure it's why he was there. And he finally said, open up a book, said, I'm going to show you some stuff. He knew more about me than I did. He had me on a wrong crew, however. But they have a book that had a lot of stuff. You wonder how they got it. You ever find out how that? I, I don't this day know. I'm sure they had spies in every base there was somewhere. They got information. At this time, did you have? Were you thinking about the future or anything? Well, well, thinking about what? Were you thinking about the future? Were you thinking about how you're going to get out of this? Well, all we knew was uh, their their word was they're going to turn us over and get a stopo because, you know, we didn't tell them enough. So they put you in what they call solitary a couple of days, and uh, that probably the guy they put me in with was a plant. <laughs> and he didn't ask me questions. I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> after a while, he 
first thing they did, they came and put you out and said, you're going, we're go you're gone. You're going to another camp. That's where I went, first camp was Stalaglyph 4, which is up in Old Poland area, way up near the Baltic Sea, if you're familiar with the Baltic Sea. It's just a little bit south of Lith old country called Lithuania. And so how, how long a journey was that then to get to there? Well, let's see, I got there on about October the, I'm going to say it was the 9th of the 10th. So that was three or four days, two days, three days at Westlar, about four, four days on the train and again, to get were there. You, were you traveling with all, all with Americans? Uh, well, with uh, guards and a few other American prisoners, yeah. Were, were you speaking at all on that journey? No, we did not. We we not weren't they didn't let us get together. Yeah. What, uh, what what were you? Did you have any plans for escape or anything? It was oh no no. no. You're gonna get out it, of this one. You, you knew you were in here for a duration, but you didn't know what that duration was. Uh, I would probably say, at that point in time, you couldn't have escaped without being able to have some hidden weapons like a gun or something that you could have blown a guy away, but uh, how was, you couldn't get away because there's too many guards on the train. The train was full of soldiers. And then when, when you arrived in this camp, what, what was the first thing, what was the first thing they made you do when you got off the train? We got off the train, they took us to a camp, and the first thing they did, they pulled all your clothes off and <coughs> check you over to see if you got any hidden th anything Look up your rear even to see if you have a compass stuffed up your rear, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, and they kind of bang you around just to let you know they're in charge. Your, your relationships with the guards, was, was it because you're both speaking these different languages? Different languages. You're on opposing sides. Yeah, right. Was there any, was there any point where you could see each other's humanity, if, if you will, or... I don't remember that the, the guard on the train was anything. He was just, you know, doing his job, and and you kind of knew that he was in control, so there wasn't anything you could do. So you more or less had to continue to hope when you got to the next spot or wherever it was in time that you could do something different. And of course, we didn't know what that was, because we had no idea where we were going. Uh, as I say, they didn't tell you anything. They just put you on this train, loads you up, and and you're there till they take you off, and that's really what happened. And when they got us into the camp, of course, then that's what I was telling you. They took all your clothes off, and I guess they deloused us, whatever that meant. Uh, I don't know what they did that for, but they must have. And uh, I mean, they did, but I don't know what it was for, except I guess they didn't trust that we were clean. Uh, all, all, of these all of these stories that we hear. They, they mugshotted you, too, I didn't tell you that. They took a mug shot of you, a picture of you, and uh, gave you a dog tag. You had a prisoner award, like an ID card. You had to wear a chain around your neck at all times. And again, it, it just seems so... The way, the way you had to be when you're in the middle of all this was practical, really. Oh, you had to be but, realistic with what you can yeah. do, yes. But emotionally, were you... Were you going right down? Or no, I was, I was optimistic because I was uh, one who believed that the war was going to be over a lot quicker than it turned out to be. Because <laughs> yeah. I knew we were going to win. I just knew that, you know. But, uh, you know, it, 
it, it was longer than I thought, but uh, you just had to sit but I was an optimist, uh, uh, believing that it would be over sooner. And I and I guess that's the beauty of all of the guys who came in behind me. They first thing they would ask, we'd ask them was, "What do you think? When's it going to be over?" They all were optimistic too. They say, "Oh, it's going to be over soon." Of course, that's what I said too. I said, "October, it'll be over by Christmas." Nope. <laughs> what? Did you get a Did you get a sense from the Germans that they knew that they were about to lose? Or? Well, no, they didn't admit anything until after the Battle of the Bulls. Uh, on, believe it or not, uh, in this camp that we were in was way up north and it was cold, really cold that time of the year, snow everywhere. And uh, we had BBC news every day. We knew what was going on. Underground, we had an underground system that got the news. And we knew every day what the news was. And we knew the Battle of Bulls went bad and we knew that, but we didn't even act like we knew it. And on December the 24th, they used to give us occasionally a Red Cross food parcel, I don't know whether you've ever heard of one of those. But anyway, uh, they made you, instead of giving that to you, one man for one week would be equal of a thousand calories a day. You could live off of that box of stuff for one week and you'd never lose any weight. So you'd hold your own. Well, the Germans didn't allow that to happen. They, what they would do, they'd take that box and rip it open, take what they wanted out of that box, and punch holes in the cans looking for a uh, compass or scissors or some kind of hidden weapon or something. And so you never got a full anything ever. But on December the 24th, they came in and gave each two men one box, a full box of food. And you talk about uh, like a, you know, a banquet first class. You had a full, of course that was for one, should have been for one man. Two of us shared that, and that was like, you know, you couldn't Best beat that. So it was really a deal. But anyway, when that was all over, then they kept saying, well, the war is, we're winning. You're winning. Now, we are going to be here. We got you. He said, when, when this is over, you know what you're going You're not going to go home. You're going to rebuild Germany brick by brick and stick by stick until you re place Germany like it was. Okay, yeah, we believe you. Adios. We knew that wasn't going to be so. Or we already knew that the Battle of the Bulls had turned and was getting better. And how many, how many camps did you end up being? Uh, well, I stayed in that camp on, on well, we, we knew the Russians were coming because, like I say, we had BBC. Yeah. We could even hear the, the heavy artillery for miles away. We knew the Russians were coming that direction. So we knew that either they were going to overrun the camp and capture us, or let us be liberated, whatever they would do with you, or the Germans were going to move us. So we had, and each, each man, I mean, each camp had four compounds, 2,500 men in one enclosure, four of them. And each one had one guy like one of us who was the go-between between the soldiers, the POWs, and the commandant of the uh, compound. So he was the voice for us. So we got all our information via him and our 2,500 people in my group. And so we knew the word was that something's going to happen. 
be prepared because the, the Germans are going to probably push you out one time in the middle of the night and you better have some clothes figured out how you can make clothes or do whatever you can do to be ready to move. And sure enough, on the 29th, I mean on the, uh, the last day of January, the middle of the night, they pulled us out of my compound, 2,500 of us, middle of two o'clock in the morning, dogs, flashlights, I mean, spotlights, bayoneted yards, dogs, out. And luckily for those who had done what our man of confidence, what he was called, for, had got us prepared to be ready. And I had even made myself a, how I got the, the knit to do this, I don't know, but I didn't know how to do anything like that. I needed a hat to come over my head and cover my ears with a flap under here, made out of old yarn from a sweater or something that I bribed a German guard to get me. And uh, I still have that to this day, as a matter of fact. And that was a lifesaver for the cold weather that we f were faced for the first seven or eight days. But, so when you were living in these camps day to day, how were you living? You just, you tried to do everything you could do. We, we could get out and walk around inside the compound. Uh, later on, we even got uh, some American Red Cross stuff like a baseball glove and baseballs and a bat and a football and a basketball and all that kind of stuff. And we'd get out there and, some, and the weather was decent. We'd get out and do some of that. But the biggest thing you did every day was wonder what you're going to get to eat for breakfast, lunch, or evening meal. In the morning, you'd be lucky if it was a piece of black bread and some butter, maybe. And some ersatz coffee. It wasn't really coffee. Kind of chicory. And for lunch, you'd probably get a bucket of soup for 25 minutes. 25 men in each room, too. So you got one bucket of soup for 25 men. You get one loaf of bread for 25 men. You slice that bread 25 slices. And be some argument about who's going to get the biggest slice, you, you know, you can imagine. So we had a system to work that out, too. You had to, had to do, be ingenious in getting all these things done. And uh, you say you were listening to the BBC. So I guess you were, you were, you were following the wall and seeing... Yeah, we knew about... You knew yeah, you know about the geographical areas they were talking about, yes. Yeah. So there must have been a sense that more and more the, the war was coming oh yeah the war was going to be in we knew that but how fast you know was uh, like f from that camp thing i wound up going to nuremberg you've heard of nuremberg and nuremberg was the worst camp you could want to get into because it's overcrowded it used to have been a uh, italian prisoner worker where the germans had the, the italians in there and it was a uh, overcrowded and terrible so we lasted there till about, uh, I guess the, uh, must have been about, uh, I was trying to think the, the actual date, 16 days, about, about the first week of uh, August, they moved us out again. 16 days we marched on the road going to another camp because the British and Americans were going to overrun Nuremberg. So we wound up going to Mooseburg, and we got there, uh, I'm going to say, I must have the dates a little wrong, because I had 16 days on the march, 
and from there probably 15 more days before the war was over. So I must have got there around the 1st of August. And by then, how long had you been in captivity? Since September of 44, yeah. So then, do you remember if there was any radio broadcast in particular leading up to the end of the war? where you thought, now it's within sight, I can see you getting out no, of No, the only thing we knew was that uh, the news gave us indication that it could be any day. And finally, in the Mooseburg, we were told about a week before Patton is approaching probably 100 miles away. And uh, when he gets here, they'll probably overrun the camp and blah, 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 and, and he'll be free. As it turned out, <coughs> that took place on the 29th of April, and we were told the day before we could even hear the, the, the artillery fire by then, so we knew they were coming, and boy, that morning, we could see the battle, of, we could see the, uh, the tanks out there fighting each other, and they told us to get on the ground, you know, get yourself killed inside the camp, get out of the way, lay down on the ground, get out of the way. So we were all doing everything we can to be find a secure place, and uh, they did. They fought, and pretty soon it was all over. And Patton's tanks just ran through, just walked over all the barbed wire, ran down all the fences, and some guy in a tank stopped within about 50 feet of me, flipped up his lid, and the commander, and he yelled, "Anybody from Texas?" Man, I said, "Me, me, buddy." So I went racing over to him. I, he, I asked him, I, what's your name? He said, Earl Cook. And he said, what's yours? And I told him, I said, what'd you say your name was? He said, Earl Cook. I said, Earl Cook? I used to work with a young lady in Dallas. Her name was Ione Cook. He said, that's my sister. I said, my goodness, unbelievable. He said, wow. I said, you're gonna get home before I do. If you beat me home, would you tell my family that you found me and I'm okay and I'll be home soon? <laughs> and sure enough, he did get home before I did and contacted my family and told me he'd found me and I was being repatriated and all that kind of stuff, going to eventually to a camp and Lucky Strike and all that to get, get on a boat to come home. So he beat me home. <laughs> and you saw him after the war? I saw him after the war. Times. Yeah, okay. he lived in Dallas. He lived in Dallas. So after, after that, then when when the tank came, when the tank came, you were essentially yeah, we were, we were actually free. But, but see, you had didn't know what to do because here there were yeah. there probably a hundred thousand guys in that camp. That was Americans, British, and a lot of others been captured in even in Africa. Mm. Some of those. So we had all kind of, and ru plus Russians. We had a few Russians. And so uh, he said, well, when am I going to be? Well, the, my idea was they told you to stay in, a, in the area where you get some food. Well, of course, I, from this tank, the fellow that I said that found me, he gave me a 10-in-1 ration. Buddy. You think about that, what that was. If you know what a 10-in-1 ration is, it's a lot of, kind of like a, a pack of everything you'd need to eat for two or three days. <laughs> so I had food. So. We decided, my buddy and I, we want to get out of that camp, take over a house. So we took over a, a German house in the little town. And where the house was, the Germans had blown the bridge across the river called the Esau River, 
and the uh, tanks had to wait to get the, a new pontoon bridge across the river so they could pursue the remnants of Hitler's uh, outfit. This was about the 30th or 31st, 30th day of April or maybe the first day of May. And we'd taken this house over. Well, they waited there two or three days until that bridge was laid to get across. And there I was in the hotel right there watching all of this. And Mr. Patton, I saw him no closer. He's close to me in that bar right there. How, how, uh, how, how one and only time I ever saw him. How did you how did you celebrate that then? That oh, we went that. crazy. It went crazy, you know. Yeah, just uh, even finding anything you could get to drink when guys were hunting stuff from the Germans, uh, uh, give you something to drink, and they'd even do that. The Americans, they 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 were scared of the Russians. See, they were really scared. Of the, so if you're American, like the lady of this house, when I told her I was going to take over the house, she she says, "Welcome, no no Ruski, no Ruski, no no Russians." So. She fed us three meals a day. We had a feather bed. No kidding. Amazing. So I spent my last few days there until I was repatriated right there. Have you ever been back to there? That I've never been to that. I'd like to go back and see if that house is still there. Of course, I doubt that it is. That's 60 some odd years ago. And then how much, how much work was there still to do in order to get out of Germany? And well, it was kind of difficult because we had to... We had to wait to be flown from there, from, uh, they had to send airplanes, picking up, I don't remember how, how many thousand Americans there were, but getting them out of there, it took me about, I'm gonna say it must have been 10 days at least to be put on a plane, and they flew me to France, and from France they put me on a train from Reims to La Havre, you know where La Havre is. And they had a place they put you in, it's called Camp Lucky Strike, which is where they repatriated all the prisoners in war. Most of them that went through there. And you, they checked you over physically, started feeding you and you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, All along this way, we were all looking at each other. Oh yeah, everybody looking at you. Yeah. Uh, just so, yeah. trying to find people you knew and all that kind of stuff. But uh, you knew then eventually you're gonna get to go home. Uh, so you sweated out from that point to time you get to go home so I so that was about uh, let's see May the 15th 14th and see I didn't get on board the ship till about two weeks later three weeks later and was the party still going on on that ship then huh was the party still going on on that ship with what on the ship back to America was the party still going on oh yes yeah oh yeah 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 <laughs> hoping you could get anything to shoot craps with or play cards or get a beer or whatever. And what was the first thing you did when you actually got home then, when you got back? To States, yeah. called home. Told them I was here. <laughs> and I'd be home as soon as I could get there. Did, at any, did, did you ever think you were never gonna, when you were in that camp, did you ever think you were never gonna hear your family's voice again? And no, I always believed that uh, I would get out uh, I, I always, like I said, I was optimistic and believing I'd get out of there quicker than it happened. But like I said, everyone who followed me had the same theory that I did. They always knew the war was going to be over soon, but how soon that was is never as quick as they thought.